So let me give us a little bit of quick framing here as we are jumping into action. I know Stan Rhodes has gotten rid of the coat and tie, but uh, I'm pretty impressed by that. Um, ben Haas has officially entered the list. We have a list of highly innocent, well-intended, but inappropriate things said in the life of a mass way. And there's a list. I am on there uh, several times, I hate to say. Many times, I hate to say that. Dan Rhodes is on there many times. Chelsea Rodenheiser is on there. Laura Chase may have had one of the great comments of all time. She is on there. So that actually could be something that you could just aspire to is to make the list. But Ben Haas right now is the reigning chap with, uh, he said this last week, I love me some Amaze Way kids. So, uh, <laughs> is that what it was? So uh, somewhere, actually, someone at one point in time actually did a, uh, off the podcast, a little recording of several of those comments strung together, and I hope that that has been deleted and uh, not sent to NSA anywhere uh, recently, so that's where that came from. But uh, hey, it's good to see everybody here tonight. We have been talking, we're in, the, we're in week three of a series that a lot of people have expressed um, uh, expressed interest in, even to the point that we have Advent upon us in about four weeks, and so we're not going to get to every topic that we want to do related to the body, and so we're going to come back at this in the spring at some point. I think there's rumor of doing a, a food and sex series at some point in time, uh, uh, but some, something on kind of intimate body life type of stuff, so that's coming. Uh, ben Haas can warm up with some great quotes for that. <laughs> Sorry, Ben. <laughs> the, That's right. Exactly. But, um, but our, um, one, of, one of the topics that was important to us, and, I, and I, I think you can see that pretty easily, Dan took us last week into the idea of what does it mean to have a Messiah who is in flesh, in body? How does that shape our thinking, our theology, our life together? Two weeks ago, we raised a lot of the questions of what have you learned about your bodies, either in your faith community, in your spiritual community, or certainly in the Christian tradition, and what do you learn about your bodies in terms of, of the culture that we live in? In. And we certainly hope to come back and do kind of a, a body image uh, night in the next couple weeks. But one of the big topics that has been important to us is the idea of death, mortality, finitude, meaning that we, we live in bodies that don't last forever. And, and what does that mean? How does that shape uh, who we are? Susan Dunlop is, is a professor at, at uh, Duke Divinity School. You've been there a good while. Mm-hmm. Uh, you, you grab your mic. Yeah. And, and she was so gracious. Uh, Brett <laughs> knew her. I, haven't, I just met her 20 minutes ago. But Brett knew that you would be a great person to have and wrote on Wednesday and said, you know, Susan would be fantastic for this. And you very graciously said yes to being fantastic for this <laughs> in about five minutes. So thank you so much for being willing to come. Why don't you start? by just sharing a little bit about um, your background, uh, pastorally, theologically, how did you get to Duke, how did you develop an interest in, in terms of grief, body, death, all of those things. I'd love to hear that. Yeah, um, well, let me start off by saying I'm, I'm really sort of taken with just my glimpse of your community. I, I'm eager to come back and hear some of the music and uh, participate in worship sometime in the future. Um, I am a missionary kid. Uh, my parents were missionaries in Iran, and 
So I think that from the very beginning of my life, I was aware of the body in pain. And we saw lots of suffering in Iran, lots of poverty. And so from the, from the very beginning of my life, I always felt like my vocation would have something to do with alleviating human pain. And um, early in my career, I was very committed to activist forms of addressing human pain. Uh, I worked really hard in the, against the war in um, uh, civil wars in Central America. I worked in the peace movement. I spent a summer on the Hill addressing Congress and sort of speaking, you know, religious truths to, to people, to legislators. And, um, and that was really the focus, I think, of my ministry for a while. And um, then, as I got older, I realized that um, there were other parts of human need that needed me, and uh, the parts of the world in pain that needed me. And it really seemed to sort of focus around the kind of pain associated with the body and with human finitude, as you said. So, um, the experience of illness, uh, the experience of dying, the experience of grieving the loss of someone to death uh, became more in my forefront, in the forefront of my mind. And now I'm sort of engaged in both. I work as, um, I work as a part-time person on the faculty at Duke teaching these classes on uh, grief and care for the, um, for the sick but also as a chaplain at Urban Ministries. And so that sort of um, feeds the part of me that wants to address social injustice and the people who uh, live on the margins, social and, and economic margins of society. So that, that's kind of my journey. And that's a, and, and this is what we love about having guests in who have such great experiences. I mean, those are profound experiences um, to, to lead us in this conversation. Why don't, could you start with a little bit of a, maybe just a little bit of an assessment? We did this a couple weeks ago, but how do you think, how is, how is grief, death, loss done in our culture? And then, um, and, and what would be your thoughts about how the, how the church, uh, broadly defined, typically uh, interacts with those realities? Well, one of my favorite quotes about um, the cultural context of uh, understanding death and human finitude is from Arnold Toynbee, and he said that death is un-American. <laughs> um, it's an affront to the right to pursue life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. And so, you know, Americans don't like to talk about death because we like to think about progress, right? going from where we are to something better and better and better and better, and, and death is an offense to that. Mm -hmm. And there are some people who say, you know, talking about death is a, as offensive as talking about, um, you know, your, the intimate facts of your personal bodily life and so forth. So it can be a very, it's a highly stigmatized topic. So how are we doing? Um, I think when Elizabeth Kubler-Ross wrote her book on death and dying in the 70s, it opened up new venues for new, gave a new language for talking about human finitude and death. And so um, there was the publication of her book, there was the hospice movement, and so death moved out of being quite such a stigmatized topic into 
more a topic of conversation. But we could do a lot better. We mm-hmm. could do a lot better. And I've seen environments where, you know, and again, the, the, the Christian community lives in all kinds of different places. Mm-hmm. One of the places it lives is in a highly programmatic, positive, get Jesus into your life kind mm-hmm. of way. And in, in a couple of those settings, I've seen people challenged for pastoral prayers that involved praying for people who are suffering or had thoughts of suicide or because it was too big of a bummer, so to speak. Yeah. And I, I think that's where maybe our, our cultural gospel and the, uh, the, 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 the reality that it may be one of the, one of the things we've said at Emmaus Way, you guys know that in some ways we use the term gospel mm-hmm. and a lot of times people from, uh, from a, a Christian perspective think the gospel means um, I don't ever have to deal with death. I just live forever. Death isn't a part of my life. Whereas the narrative we tell all the time, tell it with the communion table and our life together, that we're talking about a journey uh, uh, embracing our our death and embracing resurrection. And resurrection seems to be kind of a crazy thought if it's not detached to death and loss. And mm-hmm. Jesus didn't seem to be very awkward about this subject. So I, I wanted to push you kind of yeah. theologically to think, I mean, help us think, you know, as you're teaching students and many probably come from traditions where death was never dealt with or never talked about or silenced and put, you know, in distant reaches of the community. What, what, what do you say? What do you teach about that? What, what's important for us theologically to embrace this? Well, I mean, I think that's a really good question. What, what Christians believe is not that death is eliminated with the resurrection, right? Jesus' resurrection didn't eliminate or erase human mortality, right? But it transformed human mortality. Another way to put it is it broke the power of death or it decentered the fear of death in human life. Uh, We were talking earlier about um, a theological perspective that sees the human horror at finitude as being the core Fear that pushes human beings toward sin. So let me say that again. Um, the um, terror about our finitude, our limitedness, is what drives us to choose a piece of the created order as that which will save us. So instead of recognizing God as the one upon whom we can depend for salvation, We grasp desperately for some piece of this world to save us. So what kind, let me make that more concrete. Um, You know, we all have our favorite idols, and I'd like for you all to be brainstorming about what your favorite idol is. Um, Some of favorite American idols are money, right? Status, things, buying more and more, you know, the, the latest Apple product, right? Um, <laughs> the, the latest version of the iPad. Um, we have national idols, uh, the military, a bigger and bigger and bigger GDP, right? That is what will save us from this terror of our limitations. And it's funny, too, that we, we talk about the economy and sometimes in those uh, 
bedside manner, like the economy's not feeling very well. Yeah. We're, we're hoping for recovery. Uh, you know, so we take we take the language that we might use at a bedside of somebody who is sick or dying, and we actually apply it to those things. Uh, you know, I thought you said that earlier. I thought it's a great point that you made. We were we were chuckling about that. That this that a lot of our activity um, in our life is related to fear of death. Uh-huh. And that kind of, and I thought that might be a good place for you guys to insert yourself quickly on that. Is just what are what are things that you do, or you see, you feel pressure to do, or you see people do that in some way is a rejection of of the reality that we're mortal people that we're dependent on others. Can you give us some examples of things that you see as a part of of life that, as Susan is saying, is deeply connected to rejecting our mortality? Thoughts on that? I think we're probably all guilty of that fear of like, do you do you acknowledge that somebody's had a profound loss? Yeah, that's a great point, Sarah. The answer to that, by the way, is yes. You acknowledge it. You speak the person's name. You ask about how they're doing a month later, two months later, a year later, saying, "I re- what didn't your mom die a year ago? Yeah, I remember that. How are you doing, right? That's the answer to that question. Thank you, yeah. Anybody else? Something that you see that we do? I'll let SK go. Oh, uh, we try to transform our faces and bodies to be ever youthful, right. so that we're just as right. far away from that end point as possible, at least physically. Yeah, I was. I was going to say something. I saw an ad this week for age-defying shampoo. <laughs> <laughs> make make your hair look ten years younger. I was like, how is my hair aging? I didn't even know I needed to worry about that. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> I tried a lot of that along with Trigger and Dave, and it really didn't work very well. <laughs> neither, neither one of us is an example of age right? I'll take some old hair. If you've got some, then. Yeah. Dan, were you. Did you And in my life, it's kind of like, we just fill it with so much stuff in the senses that you have to, whether it's keep up or, or in the sense of kind of prepare in order and get things structured so that you can somehow sometime rest, maybe, I don't know. But, but uh, it just seems that there's always this shortage of time because that perspective is lost. That, that this is a kind of limited, finite world that I'm a limited person is lost. And so, in a weird way, it's like, an awareness of the reality of your death quickens your gratitude and your awakeness in the present moment, right? Well, say that again. That's a, that's a great point. An aw- yeah. An awareness of the reality of your death um, quickens your gratitude for the present moment and uh, it makes you more alert to the spirit, I think, in the present moment. Think about last this summer when we were doing kind of uh, spiritual authors and different faith traditions. Yeah, you know, that was one of the points that Henry Mallon makes so mm-hmm. well and so powerfully that the the energy that comes from to to worship and and in his language he uses rejecting hostility for hostility. 
hospitality comes from gratitude. I mean, yeah. gratitude is, is the catalyst to being a worshiping, connecting with each other people. And so here's that, here's a connection mm. of, because one of the things I, I wanted to establish tonight is to be able to talk about these deep connections between mortality, lament, worship, mm. and, and being worshiping people. Mm. So that's mm. a great point. I'm glad you said Somebody here had one, I made the trigger, yeah. Um, so I posted an article that I saw, I think it was either Washington Post or New York Times this week, and it was, it was an interview with a guy who was an undertaker and did poetry, so maybe the ultimate goth guy. But, um, was it David Lynch? It was co-written with Thomas Long, the... Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's, in this thing, what his, this new book that they put out was talking about was just this notion that a lot of people in American culture, maybe Western culture, are shifting away from sort of ritualized funerals and things like that to celebrations of life and stuff. And it was a lot of different responses from people. But I was sympathetic to what they're saying. And what the guy was saying, I thought, was I mean, I think it's one thing if you add this component of you want to celebrate a person's life and have these rituals to be able to mourn and stuff, great. But it seems like there are a lot of people, and I've met plenty of people that have said, gosh, when I die, I don't want to party. I don't want it to be all dour and down. And it's just sort of like, like even in death, you can't, you can't allow <laughs> to suffer and to feel sad to miss you because instead, to just have to focus on on what a great life you had. And, and that is a good thing to acknowledge and to be grateful for the gift. But if you don't acknowledge that the gift has now been taken away, at least for a while, it just, mm-hmm. it, it's again, it's another way of kind of lying to yourself that if you're going to, like, you're going to get out of this without <laughs> anybody having to suffer. Mm. It's just, it's not, mm. it's not true. You almost end up forcing people to live in a lie, a narrative of celebration, when that's really not where they're at. Now, looking around this room, and you know, for me, I, this this a couple five weeks ago, I had to do a funeral, and I realized, and I look around the room, I've probably officiated maybe 10 marriages in this room. I do a lot of weddings, but I rarely ever have to do a funeral. And that's and when I do, it's usually some, a really sad loss because it's someone young. And, and I say that with uh, quotation marks around sad. Uh, so we're a young community. Um, um, we're, so death is not something that we think about. And mortality, I mean, probably most of you guys uh, have not even... Uh, uh, you know, experience like some aging. Caleb, as your as your biking times dropped, and you're probably still thinking, what's the peak for a, bike, a cyclist? Mid thirties or yeah, early thirties. So you're 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 like you're on the upswing. So for for a, for a, so for a community like ours, we're young. We don't think about those things, but um, there's there's obviously something deeply significant to who we are as Christian people by acknowledging how we've been created as, as mortal people. Susan, could you talk to us a little bit in an advice mode about what's a good death? What, what does it look like to die well? And what does it look like for a community to embrace mortality in a good way? That was great advice to Sarah, just in that if you're thinking about, should I bring up the anniversary of, you should bring it up. But what are some other thoughts that you have about those things? Well, I can tell you how I want to die. Go for it. (laughs) (laughs) I want to be at home. 
I want to be surrounded by friends and family, and I want them to either be singing hymns or talking about me. <laughs> um, so in other words, I mean, they don't have to say all nice things about me, but um, I don't want them to be talking about the weather or about sports. Um, I want them to be, um, you know, sort of reflecting on that. That's how I want to die. So I would ask them, I would ask you all, how do you all want to die? Picture your, your last breath. What's the setting? Yeah. So we, I, I just, I'm taking a class with Susan, and we just had to do this uh, last week. I thought this, this like kind of what, what you want your dying wishes to be. Um, and, uh, but it, and I can give you the website because it's great. But one of the things we had to say was, how do you, how do you want people to act when they come and visit you in the hospital or at your home when you're dying? And the default answer was, you want people to be happy and, and joyful and cheerful when they come to visit you. And I was like, that's bull crap. Like, <laughs> like what kind of, like, who does that? Like, that's not real life. And that is kind of living into that lie. And so I, mean, I was similar. Like, I want people to, to be, to kind of reflect on what my life has been. And mm-hmm. that includes the bad moments, um, as well as the cheerful and, you know, things that you can celebrate. But, you know, that, that, that does include this other, these other moments um, that, and that is part of who we are as humans. I will add that um, I've been with some families where a loved one is dying and the family is so grief stricken about this death and they're so caught up in their feelings of loss that in a way they abandon the person on mm-hmm. their deathbed. And so you have to find a way to be where you are emotionally and be truthful about that while not treating them as though they're already dead, mm-hmm. right? So I is hope that, to stay connected as long as I can. Is that part of, I've seen this a couple of times pastorally, is that part of our narcissistic culture? Mm-hmm. It's not, my friend is sick. My friend yeah, is yeah, sick. Yeah. I am really struggling because Josh is about ready to kick it over there. Yeah. Don't talk to Josh. I'm struggling here. Yeah. Now, I'm, do, do, do you see that? Where yeah. to some degree we even try to engulf people's pain such uh-huh. that the, that's maybe another way that the, uh, the dying are, are put to the perimeter of our, our lives. I honestly don't see that a lot. I mean, I have seen it, but I think... Sometimes people think that this is a way to show their love and commitment to the dying person by them showing you how, showing them, demonstrating how stricken you are with the thought of losing losing that person. Yeah. So those are great words. Other things that you would tell us in terms of of how how do we live? How do we live? How do we worship? How do we operate in a because we're this community is really committed to the practice yeah. of faith and mm-hmm. and a communal practice of faith. So this is an important question for us. Well, okay. One of the things that I teach about pastoral care <clears throat> is that pastoral care happens in four ways. One, it's individual clergy actions. It's you going to the hospital and doing things. Um, secondly, it's formalized groups that are you know, the Martha ministry that brings meals to people in the hospital. And then the fourth way are just kind of these informal friendships and networks where the men's Bible study mows the lawn or something like that. But the fourth way, which I think is really what you're asking, is what kind of a culture is there where 
it's where it's a good place to grow old and sick and die and grieve. Mm-hmm. So, the, so I have some features of that community, what that community is like. One, it's a gracious community. It's a community where it's safe to be a failure morally and emotionally, right? Because when people get sick or are dying, there's a lot, often a lot of judgment going on. Well, if she hadn't gained so much weight or if he hadn't smoked or he, never, he didn't go to the doctor often enough, or his life was too stressed out. We are quick to blame the sick and the dying for their illnesses. This is ingrained in American culture, okay? So righteousness and health are associated. They're right? offending our way of life. They're, so, they're, yeah, exactly. So we need to get out. Exactly. And of course, you know, one of the advantages of blaming the sick for their illness is it distances us from it. So we won't be that way, so we won't catch that cancer. So, so a community where grace abounds, um, and it's safe to talk about your, your flaws. Um, secondly, it's a place where it's safe to be physically imperfect too. In other words, not a place that valorizes youth and vigor. So all the posters all over the website, they're the young, happy, smiling families with perfect <laughs> bodies, right? So um, it's, a, it's a community where the old, the disabled, uh, people with mental illness, people with um, Alzheimer's and so forth are enfolded into the community. Mm-hmm. Um, and then and for us, maybe as uh, a youthful church, uh-huh. it would be maybe not being entirely slaves to a beauty culture right? where, where, where that and, and, and creating slight uh, hierarchies right. based on beauty or affluence or Health. athletic yeah. prowess exactly. or those type of things too. And I would add um, not a slave to stereotypical gender roles because I have this theory mm-hmm. that one of the things that makes men and women isolate themselves when they're sick is women don't want to be seen ugly and men don't want to be seen weak. Hmm. Does that resonate with you all? Yeah. So we'll hide ourselves away so we won't be appear in our community looking ugly or weak. Um, the other feature of this kind of ideal congregation is it's because many illnesses are stigmatized and illnesses breathe death, they sort of Mm-hmm. Um, give forth an aura of death and we don't want to talk about death um, any community that accepts the others capital O of the world mm-hmm. will be more accepting of the sick and the dying mm-hmm. so um, here's an example that I like to give um, I knew a woman once who whose grandson was dying of AIDS no no wait her, her daughter that's right her daughter was dying of AIDS, and she didn't tell a soul. Mm-hmm. Um, and so she went through that grief, grieving period after her daughter died, all by herself. Mm-hmm. But if she had been in a community that welcomes all sorts of people, you know, gay, straight, <clears throat> healthy, unhealthy, she would have felt free to talk about that, right? So if there are, and I think that this is a deep connection, we've made it to 
to worship, but now you're making it to mission as well. Is that mm-hmm. if our posture, our posture of hospitality, is going to be absolutely critical for people to bring in a physical flaw, an emotional flaw, or to do the most offensive thing possible? Is that's dials, yeah, so to speak. So yeah, yeah, yeah exactly, exactly. Yeah. I want to make another point that's sure, sort of disconnected. Um, it's kind of about my journey. <clears throat> um, so, as I said, in kind of the early part of my ministry, I was really into kind of confronting the powers, you know, of injustice and, and so forth. And I thought, you know, if we're going to have racial reconciliation, if we're going to come together across the horrific divide of racism, um, then we're going to have to link arms to confront... The powers, right? Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. Uh, we're going to have to confront the powers of evil and poverty and exploitation <laughs> together, right? Well, as I grow older and as I get deeper into this work, I'm thinking that our coalitions can't only about be about confronting the powers, but also about confronting our shared experience of powerlessness in the face of illness and death, mm-hmm, okay? Mm-hmm. So um, I'm really interested in bringing churches together to talk about um, how we're going to form um, ministries for the dying, ministries for the sick, black and white together, okay? What can we learn from a disenfranchised community about how they have confronted the reality of death and, and, and vice versa? What, do we, what are our wisdoms that we have to share? So that's a bit of a, a shift in the way I've understood coming together across the wound of racism. Did that make sense? Yeah. Think about the impact of that comment. I mean, it's very white, right, to feel like we are in control, we're in power, and everybody should be trying to become whiter, right? Whether it's, I mean, that's, that's the game, physically, intellectually, sexually, all these things. Mm-hmm. Where white is the way mm-hmm. our society has set that up. And death is a real offense to not just Americanism, but whiteness again, oh, because yeah, it, sure. it implies that we're not in control, that we're mm-hmm. not the dominant paradigm, right. because this is something that rules over us. So notice the great power that the marginalized have in terms of of telling us who we really are mm-hmm. as created human beings. Right. And to some degree, this is our challenge as worshipers, is we tend to implicitly, explicitly, culturally, politically exclude the very people that have the the words to help us understand who we truly are as creative persons. That's a that, that was that comment, Susan, was worth the price of admission. I think. And what was the price of admission? I remember what it was. That's a, but that under the linkages between race and reconciliation, between worship and mission, in this concept of understanding who we are as body people, is a big one. I think it's very big. I think it's very big. Can I just tell a little? I saw Again. you looking at the time. No, well, I didn't there? succeed. How am I doing on time, Sir Josh? You have my. I gave you my. Your, your non-Apple product sure doesn't work very well, Josh. It's six fourteen. Okay. Yeah. Tell me. Let's do that story, and then we'll we'll move to the meditation. Yeah. Good. Um, so I wrote a book a few years ago where I studied three churches in Durham and their practices of care for the sick. In other words, I looked at a Latino church. Uh, an African-American apostolic holiness church and a white downtown church. 
and their practices of responding to human finitude in the form of frailty. I mean, what is the congregationally constructed body is what I looked at. Um, so I went to interview the pastor and a healer in this African-American holiness church. And um, I was a bit grumpy that day. And I sat in the car before I went into the church to interview them. And I said, okay, I want this book to be based on authentic encounters between me and these people that I'm interviewing. So I went in, and the pastor said, so, you know, how are you doing? And I said, well, you know, I'm, I'm not doing great today. I'm just a little grumpy. And so, well, what's going on? And I said, well, um, we just had some uh, fertility tests, and um, I'm not going to be able to have another baby. And uh, so I really sort of put, I was quite vulnerable with her about my body. So this healer um, said, Susan, stand up. And so I stood up and she came and stood behind me and she put her arms around me and placed her hands right down here. And she started invoking the name of Jesus and, (laughs) you know, casting out the devil and asked God to come in and, you know, Help me have a, another baby and so forth. And so I was, I was faced with this decision, like, am I going to sit here and say, tell myself, well, this is weird, 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 please stop, please stop, or am I going to go with it? And I decided to just go with it. So I really, I sort of prayed with her. And um, to me, there was a healing, and this is what it was. I was filled with a deep and new gratitude for the daughter that I was able to have at age 41. Mm. And that gratitude has stayed with me ever since that moment. So um, this is what we have to learn when we confront human finitude across the boundaries, across cultural boundaries, um, uh, really explore each other's wisdoms and knowledges of God. and so that, that was a real important moment. That's a great point. And think about just that. That was a that moment was a boundary crossing. Mm-hmm. And 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 the, the way we've constructed it for the most part, mm-hmm. it was inappropriate in the sense uh-huh. of talking that intimately about your body and yeah. your your uh, your your desires and your your sadness and all of those things. Mm-hmm. There's some powerful kind of uh, imperatives for us that, mm-hmm. that have a beautiful end. I mean, you're talking about healing. You're talking about living in gratitude. You're talking about living in gratitude that's not distance from mourning and right. from loss. And right. that's and very close to the body. Oh, that's yeah. fantastic. Yeah. Susan, thank you so sure. much. We would love for you to come back again well, thank you. and continue I'd this conversation in, in lots of ways. It would be fantastic for us. So thank you for, uh, on such a, uh, just a quick turnaround. Uh, being, well, you were traveling this week, and we're glad to have you. Thank you so much. Josh, I think, who is the one who does that? It's Sir Mark Williams. Thank you. So, did I get the wrong one? All right, so this sort of, what, what Dan said a few minutes ago sort of resonated with me about um, the idea that somehow we we begin to um, we, we sort of miss reality around us oftentimes because uh, we we keep ourselves busy we 
Um, we continually talk about not having enough time for one thing or another. Um, the activity that we're going to do tonight uh, is sort of a sort of a mindfulness meditation, and the process of that will start out in what I would say is a little bit of a meditation to sort of still ourselves, to calm our bodies, um, to still our minds, and enable us to then interact with the world in a different way than we normally do. And that second part will be sort of what we would talk about as being mindfulness. So the first thing that I want us to do is, um, is I want us to, to sort of still ourselves. So to do that, some of you may want to close your eyes. You don't have to, but you may want to do that. And I would ask you to sort of lean back a little bit in your chair. And there are two kinds of breathing. All right. There is sort of chest breathing and there is belly breathing. And some of us are uh, natural belly breathers and some are natural chest breathers. The, the belly breathers out there, um, there's this nerve, the vagus nerve that comes down uh, in front and is sort of inviscerated in your front and it attaches to the brainstem. It actually, if you are belly breathing, it actually causes you to calm down. So put one hand on your chest and one hand on your belly. And pay attention as you're breathing, which hand naturally rises for you, whether it is your belly or whether it is your chest. I want you to try to make the belly hand be the one that rises. Breathe slowly. Breathe intentionally. Breathe deeply. Let the things that are on your mind that you brought with you tonight, let those things go. Pay attention to your breath and to the movement of your hand. And let the rhythm of that still your mind. Let it still your spirit. In our series on the body, we have been talking about um, all the different ways that our bodies interact with the world and interact with one another. And we are created beings uh, with five main ways of experiencing the world, experiencing physical reality. And those are what we call our five senses. Sight, hearing, smell, touch, taste. The activity we're gonna be doing tonight it's going to be trying to focus our attention on each one of those senses. Most of the information that we take in around us comes through our eyes. 70, 80%, something like that. Of all the information we gather about the world, we gather through our eyes. But we have these four other senses and we just don't get to use them very often or we don't allow ourselves or make ourselves use those very often. Tonight we're gonna to try to use all those senses so open your eyes if they're closed. I want you to notice the light that's in this room. Pay attention to how much information you take in with your eyes and how much you rely on your eyes versus your other senses. Notice the colors that you see. 
the shapes that you see, the hard surfaces, the soft surfaces. And now close your eyes. Think about your hearing for a minute. There's a difference between hearing and listening. Most of us are used to hearing things. We hear people speak. We hear sounds, but we oftentimes do not listen very well. Listen to what you hear in this space. Even when I stop talking alone, it'll be quiet. But it's not really quiet. Think about what you hear. Whether you hear sounds on the street, whether you hear your own breath, or the person sitting next to you shift in a chair, or the children in the back playing. Just listen. Now smell. What can you smell in the room? Can you smell the wine that's at your table that's been decanting all night? Can you smell the bread that has been broken at your table? What do those smells remind you of? Can you imagine bread being baked in an oven somewhere in a home? What else? What about outside this table? What can you smell in the room? Do you smell the age of the room? Do you smell the wood panels of the floors? Now for touch. What does it feel like to sit in your chair? Does it feel like that there's a cushion on that chair rather than it just being a hard surface? What does it feel like as it meets the back of your legs? What about the floor that's underneath your feet? This is a wood floor. What would it feel like if the floor were made out of concrete? Or out of tile? What is softer than those? What does this feel like? For taste, in just a few moments we'll be tasting bread and wine. What does your mouth taste like right now? Do you taste sweetness from an apple that you may have eaten off the other table? Does your mouth taste dry? Does it taste bitter? Can you feel any interaction between your taste and your sense of smell? Part of the act of mindfulness that Laurie Wooden's going to lead us through in just a minute. Part of the act of mindfulness is actually taking use of our senses and interacting with the world.
table's kind of Eucharist and also Eucharist deconstructed. We have the dough that makes the bread, we have the grapes and the herbs, and um, we're going to use the steps that Mark just led us through to practice taking Eucharist in maybe a way that we haven't before in the past um, to practice the skills of being present in the moment, um, to focus our attention, to utilize all of our senses um, to um, kind of go through this. So wherever you are, um, just get comfortable and we're going to practice utilizing the sense of touch first. So you have on your table um, dough. So I'd like to ask everyone to take a piece of the dough into your hand and hold it just in the palm of your hand or between your fingers and thumb. We have regular dough on the table and gluten-free dough on the table for whoever has preferences. So just focus on what it feels like in your hand. Imagine that you've never seen an object like this before in your life. Take it in. Take time to really see it. To look at it with care and attention. Let your eyes explore every part of it. Examining where the light shines. where Where the darker hollows are. The folds and the ridges. Is it smooth? Is it asymmetric? Is it, what are you, its unique features? I'm just observant. And you can turn it over in your hand, between your fingers, exploring the texture. What does it feel like? Is it smooth? Is it stretchy and sticky? Is it dry? Maybe with your eyes closed, if you want to, you can just focus on the sense of touch and how it feels in your hand. Maybe you want to squeeze it and play with it, and that's okay. Next, we can use our sense of smell. You can hold it beneath your nose and smell with each inhalation, drink in any smell, aroma, or fragrance that may arise. And just notice as you do this, anything interesting that may be happening to your mouth and your stomach. And next we're gonna move to uh, the grapes that are on your table. Everyone should have grapes there. Um, And we're gonna practice our sense of of touch. So once everyone has put the dough down and gets a grape into their hand, just notice the grape as well and how that feels in your hand. Is it cool to the touch? Is it warm? Notice the texture of it. And now slowly bring the grape up to your lips. Notice how your hand and your arm know exactly how and where to position it. Gently place the grape in your mouth without chewing. Notice how it gets into the mouth in the first place. And spend a few moments exploring the sensation of having it in your mouth and exploring with your tongue. And when you're ready, prepare to chew the grape 
noticing how and where it needs to be for chewing. And very consciously take one or two bites into it and notice what happens in the aftermath. Experiencing any waves of taste that emanate from it as you continue chewing. Without swallowing yet, just notice the bare sensation of taste and texture in the mouth and how these may change over time, moment by moment, as well as any changes in the object itself. You may notice that um, you have different tastes depending on where the grape is in your mouth. When you feel ready to swallow, see if you can first detect the intention to swallow as it comes up so that even this is experienced consciously before you actually swallow the grape. And finally, see if you can feel what is left of the grape moving down into your stomach and sense how the body as a whole is feeling after completing. It's in this mindful sort of state that we're going to be taking Eucharist tonight. We're going to uh, share Eucharist at our tables. Um, We'll do as we do every week. We'll break bread for one another, saying the body of Christ broken for you. We'll pour wine uh, and juice for one another, saying the blood of Christ shed for you. There's wine at every table. There's juice at most tables. But um, if your table doesn't have juice, then uh, you can find one that does. Before we uh, dismiss the Eucharist tonight, I want to read a benediction from Teresa of Avila. And uh, I think what this does really well is connect some of what we've just been doing with some of what we've been talking about in the body series in terms of thinking about the way that we know our own bodies and the way that we know the bodies of those in this community plays into um, a much larger view of the body of Christ. So I hear these words as the benediction. Christ has no body but yours. No hands, no feet on earth but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on the world. Yours are the feet with which he walks to do good. Yours are the hands with which he blesses all the world. Yours are the hands, yours are the feet, yours are the eyes, you are his body. Christ has no body now but yours. No hands, no feet, no earth, but yours. Yours are the eyes with which he looks compassion on this world. Christ has no body now on earth but yours. Welcome to the table.